0: Hi everyone, I'm your host Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome. This is episode one of the OMD Daily Investing in Humans show. Um, It's what I would call a podlog. It's kind of the version of a vlog, blog, but I thought what can I do in the audio world that's kind of like that. Um, just kind of getting inspired from YouTubers like Casey Neistat who is like the OG in the vlog world and you know it's Seth Godin who has who's known for his famous blog that he writes on every day so I thought hmm why don't I make something of my own something similar and I know there's some daily podcasts out there like software engineering daily and so I thought yeah maybe i'll use some kind of format i love audio so i'll use podcasts to kind of go through the journey um kind of a way for me to rant and mumble every day about random things on the journey but also just talk about the things i learn throughout the day things i've done and yeah i guess it's kind of narcissistic to talk about myself every day but i thought it could be fun so we'll see how it goes I've experimented with doing solo podcasts a few times. One was where I, I, I think I recorded about four episodes worth where I'm reviewing books that I read and I found that about within the 30 minute mark I would get very tired and my throat starts hurting. So that's something to keep in mind. So these might be short. I'm, I haven't decided yet. This is the first episode. I spent All day today, just kind of mapping out everything on my little Lystrom notebook. It's a fancier version of a Moleskine. The reason I use a Lystrom is because it has, um, it doesn't even have lines, it has dots. And I find that makes it a little easier when I start drawing pictures and graphs and little arrows and charts for me to plan everything. And another bonus point is that Neil Gaiman, the famous author, um, he uses the, the Leuchtturm notebook as well, so that makes me feel a little more special, you know, to, to be using the, a kind of German notebook that Neil Gaiman uses, and I'm a big fan of his. I've never read any of his fictional work, but I just love the guy. I just enjoy his interviews, I love his commencement speech, and just the way he views the world, and yeah, so I guess it's kind of how... these episodes will go at least for the short term um i thought for today i'll kind of talk a little bit about why this exists it's kind of a you could call it a hail mary in one aspect really like i've tried a lot of different podcasts i've tried creating accounted for well i did create accounted for my first podcast with 80 plus episodes where it went from a weekly to a bi-weekly and I've honestly been struggling with creating a second quote-unquote flagship podcast that focuses more on the brand of OMD Ventures, and if you're new to all this, OMD Ventures is kind of the media platform I created, kind of involuntarily. It's the cr- culmination of my blog, my week- my weekly blog, and my weekly podcast, and it all kind of combined to a platform, and I started having a dream, as Martin Luther King said, but My dream is nothing fancy. The dream is that I want to, honestly, I want to turn OMB Ventures into a media and investment company. This kind of, my dream is to have it be a singular one-man company where I can generate cash flow off of podcasts and the media things that I create, whether I, I write a book in the future or the articles that I write every week. And maybe this OMB Daily thing will turn into something I don't know. But that's the, that's the dream. I want to use a media side to cr- make it into a cash flow engine and use all that cash flow to funnel into the investment side where I can use my own style of investing, um, a style of investing where I think some people do it, but it's not to the extent that I want to, which is an approach in investing in people. And it's something I've been experimenting with back in my public equity days where a lot of my investing was focused on management and owner operators. And I'm trying to, well, the last few years, I've been trying to find out how to combine that interest, and maybe I'll call it passion. Since I've been doing all this for the last two years without getting paid, they say that's kind of the best test, right? Do something you love so much that you st- still rather do it instead of earning money over. <laughs> so call it stupidity, call it being stubborn, mix of everything. I think it's kind of dictated for me that this mission, passion, whatever it is, it's just something I believe in. And it's this view that I still have a little difficult time communicating to other people in a short one-liner. And although I call OMD Ventures a, a platform to invest in human potential, it ultimately is I want to have enough capital to deploy into companies and primarily founders who I I find to be exceptional people, and I actually want to help them create utopian companies. I honestly believe that companies have an enormous role to play in the future of people's lives, and I think a company that can be quote-unquote utopian in nature, whatever that definition means, I think it will embody what the founder believes, but I think if there's an exceptional founder, they will have the right values um, to create a company where... The company succeeds as a result of the people within it prospering. I think that's very fairly, fairly simple to understand. And I think that human creativity is going to be the primary asset for most companies in the future. I think modern-day financial statements cannot account for that properly. And you know I've been trying to write essays and I've been trying to find ways of redesigning, like, the return invested calculations to account for people. Like, I've been experimenting with different things. Um, nothing in depth yet, but something up, like an example is, like, if a company has four-year vesting periods on stock compensation, what if I capitalized expenses for four years? That's because if you have equity that vests over a four-year period, that kind of implies that you... Are intending to keep a person around for four years that is if they were purposely implemented i think most companies haven't really thought about any of this through i think like i've spoken to more than like 100 startups and most people just pay lip service to caring about people and that's just ping pong tables and then you look at the people they hire for hr and it's just one of the mill 20 years hr executive who doesn't really know how to deal with high performers like no shade to hr people but the fact is you you don't see anyone graduate from university top of their class and say, I'm going to work in HR. They just want to work in consulting, banking, um, the top engineering firms, like top tech firms, etc. Like, that's just how the world is. And it's no lie that that's the field, I think, where all the top talent should be. But it actually isn't the case. It's kind of the inverse of that, I would say. Um, but yeah, that's generally the kind of work I'm trying to do. And... I did have like an OMD weekly, I think, where I had like a vlog where I talk about my day or my week, what I did, what's happened. And there was a few a bit of traction there. Maybe it was the visual element. People liked that. But I wasn't very comfortable talking to myself in front of a camera, and I didn't enjoy it, to be honest. So I thought maybe I'll just still keep it audio. I still like talking, although I do prefer and. Anth- asking people questions more than talking myself. I don't find I give great answers. Um, I'm an awful interviewee. Maybe that's probably why I don't do too well in job interviews. Although I've had an amazing career so far and some great jobs, but that I think isn't, like it kinda, I got lucky, but at the same time, yeah, like I think I've done a lot of interviews (laughs) and, I definitely haven't done well in most of them, so and I generally am very uncomfortable doing interviews. I find it's exceptionally um a poorly designed experience to assume that you can tell ask someone tell me about yourself in thirty minute in like a thirty minute window and you hope to get an idea of the person and most of the time the person's not really gonna give you the best answers really i I think um but yeah, so. Well, there's been nine minutes i've kind of rambled on effectively until then so yeah what did i do today if you're interested well i spent a lot of the day actually being very ineffective in furthering omd ventures in one way because like i said i've just been mapping out everything of like what should i do now and to be fair it's kind of a it's been a difficult question it's been something on my mind a lot, especially with COVID and kind of all my previous opportunities um, shutting down. I was like in conversations with incubators to potentially run programs there and those opportunities all kind of shut down. Um, I was talking to companies for possibly setting up podcasts for them, kind of a partnership thing, consulting thing, and yeah, all those kind of conversations ended. And I hit 20 uh I became 28 <laughs> and so that was also kind of a you know it got me thinking a little as well as no no matter how much or how little I try to place weight on age because thankfully I look 18 it still bothers me to an extent for sure because you know I've kind of progressed in my career where you know, I've been a charter accountant I've been a management consultant I've been a you know investor for a long only public equity fund and it's been the funny thing is i realized that i spent less time at any job compared to what i've done with omd ventures it's it's very odd um yeah because if i think about it when i was in audit i spent about a year, full-time. Full when I was in consulting, a year and a half. Just shy of two years. And then when I was at more the fund, that was under a year. And I've been doing this for more than two years now, or I guess technically not two years yet, but it'll probably be two years soon. So that's also an indication for me where I spent two years not making any much of an income, just living off of savings and the investments I've made, and I'd kind of much rather doing this, although it's not for a lack of trying. I think last year I applied to some, I want to say about two hundred, two hundred twenty job applications, I had about a dozen interviews, and honestly, they didn't really go the way I wanted to. Some I ended because it just didn't feel right. Some I just didn't get a chance to go on to the next round in. Um, some spoke with the CEO and we just kind of determined that they wanted someone with 20 years experience, and I had much less than that, especially in like a field like, for example, like I was interviewing for, had like the performance coach for an entire tech company of like 150 people and the guy wanted someone with 10 years of experience who've coached people in their 30s and 40s and told him yeah i haven't done that i'm not even in my 30s yet but i think i'm the right person to do it and he just didn't want to take the risk which is fine which also kind of made me realize uh, you know i'm gonna have to do the work somehow even if no one's gonna give me the chance it's always the chicken and the egg people always want you to have experience but how can you have experience when no one wants to give you the chance gonna have to find a way to do it somehow and that's just how i got into becoming an be, becoming an investor anyways and so if i look at my quote unquote success in that first problem you know, i wrote a lot of research reports submitted that grabbed coffee for a year and a half with a bunch of hedge fund managers and so that's how things developed and omdv is my attempt at that you know building out the podcast, building out the media side, and realizing that, yeah, it very, I really do enjoy creating, and I really love writing, I didn't realize that, I love writing, uh, I love reading, I love thinking, and yeah, I, you know, you only get one life, and it's always best to dream, I think, to have the life that you want, and best to try to achieve that dream. And yeah, I'm not lying when I say this is kind of a desperation play in one way because I'm just kind of out of ideas. I'm very tired of the journey to some degree. Um, I don't really have much of an attack plan. Like As someone who loves systems and loves planning, I just feel like I've... Built so many plans and have had so many of them crack over the last two years. Like easily in the two years, I've had more than ten large projects start, spend hundreds of hours on it, um, not work, pivot, pivot, pivot over and over again. And it could just be that yeah, maybe not a very good person with running a company. It's also kind of maybe that's why I realized that I probably don't want to start a company. I think after talking to so many entrepreneurs and account for that, I realized. Yeah, like what they do it sounds crazy and they're definitely very special people for doing that like it takes a lot of balls a lot of courage I think you know people I've had friends supportive friends tell me like it takes a lot of courage to do what I do but I think it takes a lot of fucking courage to run a company with a hundred people or even like thirty people um, taking VC money and stuff I think it's I think it's mad shit and <laughs> kudos to them and I'd rather be the person that can help them than be the one doing it myself and I think I'm pretty comfortable with being that kind of guy. I i am comfortable not ever being the CEO of a billion dollar company. I don't think I ever want to be one either. I'd rather run like a small one-person, two-person company. I'd rather run a, sing- a one-person fund as like a solo investor. I'd rather never take outside capital because I just... I can't even really deal with the pressure of handling my parents' money. And so I'd still have them have full control and even when they ask me what they should do with their money, I'm... S- extremely hesitant to give them any advice and i usually make them buy things that i wouldn't buy because they're just so safe but it's just yeah (laughs) given that kind of stuff i don't know a lot of people dream about running other people's money and having a fund and living like that as an investor but as much as i want to be an investor full-time who spends a lot of time building a media company and working with entrepreneurs to build you know, utopian companies for the future I would much rather not run other people's money and yeah I think that's definitely probably one of the reasons why I'm currently in this kind of zone um, because I've had earlier projects where there were opportunities to run other people's money and that just didn't end up pursuing it might have been a mistake I'm not sure it's also kind of also the reason why I stopped applying for, or I didn't go back to a public equity fund, although I had people in my network when I uh, left more. They they did offer opportunities of you know potentially joining their funds, um, but I think at that point I wasn't ready. But I, I also didn't, don't think I realized how much I enjoyed investing. I think two years of building a media company and also having... Uh, huge bear market because of COVID it helped me realize that yeah I fucking love investing I love being in tune with the markets um, to some degree but it's also kind of I love investing doing it my way and that also means looking at companies differently um, honestly I don't really love digging into annual reports it's not me I don't enjoy reading ten Ks but I really love and I love reading shareholder letters. Um, things that manage, like really awesome managers, right? Like, those are things I enjoyed reading. And there's gonna be plenty of, in, plenty of investors, fundamental guys, value guys, telling me that's not how you should invest and how can you do proper due diligence. And that's fine. Um, I don't really care what those people think. And that's also probably why I probably won't do too well in a fund. Um, and I could be totally wrong. And that's another thing. There's a lot of people with stats and data that say, you know, Deep Value Works, Quant Works, all that kind of stuff. And honestly, all I have is the belief that I think there's enough case for amazing founders and CEOs making really successful companies. And this the empirical belief that, yeah, I think if employees are taken care of, then they'll take care of customers and your customers are taken care of then your company will probably do well. And over time for a company to succeed and be sustainable, you need to be able to be creative and innovative in what you do. And yeah, that's the kind of overall ploy. And I'm combining that with all the business model learning that I love still doing and all the learning I do from history and all that. And what's been pretty timely today is that I read... A article by Kevin Kelly. So if you're not familiar with Kevin Kelly, Kevin Kelly is this awesome guy who is the founder of Wired magazine. I think that's what he's known for. And he also has, um, I think he's published all these books on like the world encyclopedia when he like took photos all over the world when he was in his teens, when he traveled the world like way back. Um, he's an oldie, but a goodie. And he's written numerous books on technology and um yeah like if you don't know kevin kelly um that's insane i i don't know i don't know how you don't know kevin kelly that's kind of a, a crime so you should figure out who kevin kelly is um i'm not really the person to do that for you but just type in thousand true fans by kevin kelly as like the first guide that's what i recommend read up about him but early in my journey back in 2018 i emailed kevin kelly back in december cuz i think that's when it first hit me that it shit just wasn't going the way i wanted to um i'd left more end of february early march 2018 and i honestly thought i would be at a tech company doing operations or some i don't know some kind of job i just f- ex- imagine i'd have kind of figured shit out and I'd be investing in startups or something by then, by end of 2018, and I wasn't. I was running a podcast or I was running a blog and all of which, you know, they weren't successful by any means. Maybe a thousand people read that stuff. Um, Maybe a hundred people listened to my podcast. And I really didn't know what to do. I was pretty certain of what I wanted to do. I was pretty certain of what I wanted to achieve. I just didn't know how. And I was just f- smashing my head against the wall, trying all these different projects. And honestly, I was just extremely frustrated because I just kept them kind of blaming the world where I just couldn't understand why people un- weren't understanding what I was trying to do, weren't understanding how I could be of value to their companies. It was just very frustrating. Um, and so I wrote a huge-ass email to Kevin Kelly. I think it was Christmas Day. Might have been Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. Write him a huge, long letter. Tell him all the shit I did, and I have no fucking idea what I should be doing. I want to get these thousand true fans, and I live off the art that I make. And the next morning, checked my email, and lo and behold, Kevin Kelly gave gave a fucking reply. It's it's honestly insane. That was I think that's my first celebrity moment ever. Uh, oh, here it is. So I found the email. I sent the email December December 26, 2018 at one thirty a.m. to Kevin Kelly. And I told him, I'm not too sure about the business model. I don't know what to really think about it. I am trying to embrace being lost and trying a lot of things, and I don't know what to do. And actually, Kevin Kelly had sent out sent me a reply at December 26, 2018 at 3 in the morning. He must be in... West Coast time then. Yeah, West Coast time. So it was midnight for him. And he wrote, you have not experienced real failure yet. Keep on. So for me at that point, I was like, oh, fuck, all right. Well, Kevin Kelly says I haven't failed yet. So either the shit I'm doing isn't remarkable enough and, you know, it's just... In short, he's kind of saying stop being a pussy and just do more shit and figure shit out. So that was really inspiring for me. And so that's kind of the backstory of Kevin Kelly and why he kind of has a deeper part of my, my heart, um, because he was kind of involved in the early years of my struggles. And he turned 68, I think this week, and he wrote a post called 68 Bits of Unsolicited." Unsolicited advice, and so I spent a good day just reading through all sixty-eight pieces of advice Mm. and thinking about it, and writing down a lot of the sixty-eight advice points that I found to be super cool and that hit home for me. And so thought I'd share a few of them. You know, I think this kind of be what what I talk about. You know, like it's a daily show. I'll talk about things I learn, and hopefully you'll find it interesting Um, if you can tune out me bitching and ranting about shit that doesn't apply to you um but yeah so i don't know if i should read all of them well not all, all succeed but i currently have one to about 15 points that i thought were valuable so I'll, maybe i'll do all but maybe I'll only do five let's see which ones i like um mm, so the first one that i thought was important was you are what you do not what you say not what you believe Not how you vote, but what you spend your time on. And that hit home because, you know, it just makes you examine, you know, what what am I spending my time on? And yeah, I think it's kind of, it's one of those things where even though I have a grand vision of things, I have to tackle things every day. And some days I can handle it pretty well. Like I get a lot of shit done, get deep work sessions in. In some days, it's just a fucking shit show, and I just can't find motivation. And today was one of those days. I got distracted. I like, I had the routine. Um, I woke up. I read a chapter of The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley. I did my morning 100 push-ups, um, went into my journaling, and boom, just got distracted um, by the markets, by Twitter. Um, I'm in this financial twi- Twitter community, which delivers all this investing news to me but it's a uh, distraction and I got distracted from the main work of today which is actually to further go deeper into the research process for two stock ideas Um, one is a pet insurance company called Trupanion that I've been working on since last week and then a new one potentially called uh, for Morningstar and that's kind of a two birds one stone where I spoke to a venture capital fund early this week and they they are hiring for someone to join the team and my recent pivot has been to you know if the media side is going to take time i think to build cash flow as i figure out what the business model is and and also figure out what i'm trying to create and so because of that i've been trying to find okay well how can i generate cash flow but at the same time do the work i want to do and you know i applied to a lot of jobs last year and The recent reignitement of how much I love investing also kind of made me realize that okay, I also spoke to a lot of incubators prior to when I was interviewing to run them. Made me realize that venture capital is probably the best way for me to do what I want to do, where I get to invest in companies, learn, spend a lot of time thinking, um, and help entrepreneurs. Um, I guess in the near term with the financial acumen I have, but at the same time, eventually, hopefully, earning the right to help them design org systems to create a utopian company and another thing is I like small organizations better like I think even a 30% company will still drive me nuts because I hate office politics and I'm, and I'm generally too blunt for people I generally end up having 50% of the firm dislike me and 50% really like me so if I can really lower the sample size down to like 5 people I work with or 3 people I work with probably better <laughs> but yeah so I was supposed to work on that but I didn't and so that's my failure, huge failing on me. So that that sentence hit home, what I spend my time on, but yeah, something to constantly work on to improve on every day. Uh, another quote is, don't be the best, be the only, and that inspired me to kind of do the first episode of OMD Daily today because I know there are a lot of daily podcasts out there, but I don't know anyone that uses the word (laughs) podlog. So I thought, maybe that's my unique thing. (laughs) Um, But in all seriousness, yeah, it's... I think being the only is also really lonely and it makes you feel really stupid when things don't work out. And that's how I've been feeling for the last few years. Um, Generally, when, you know, everything stops and you have time to think and time to reflect and you you push all those things away because you believe in what you're creating and you believe in the long-term nature of the journey. But it's hard to deny. And it's always nice to be reminded when Kevin Kelly says, don't be the best, be the only. And trying my best to be the only and trying to make it work so it's always nice to read that another one Mm. pros are just amateurs who know how to gracefully recover from their mistakes i've been making a ton of mistakes but i still feel like an amateur so i think there's a long way to go as kelly said i haven't really failed yet and i think you know some people might say you know two years of no income two years of but a bunch of failed projects a bunch of mistakes i've made could be enough of a failure but I don't know I still feel like I have enough life in me (laughs) to be going forward and that's where stubbornness kind of gets you and it's like that weird tight line between you know are you bashing your head in too long should you be quitting and some people who end up quitting too early and I don't know what's what (sighs) like honestly all I'm really good at is just kind of keeping my head down and just pushing that's just kind of how I've lived life um like when i was fat all i did was just keep my head down and just working out no science nothing just stopped eating sweets stopped drinking pop only chicken breast no sauce just extreme and then it just kind of worked out and i got really strong same thing like same thing with how i got my first job in audit like at kpmg i wasn't even allowed to apply in the school system just Head down, network my ass off, tell everyone I'll do anything to get a job. Got, I think, I applied to like 55 jobs, zero interviews for any of them. I got two interviews, one for an investment bank and one for KPMG, and yeah, both on the same day. Had to cancel the investment bank one just to do KPMG, and all eggs in one basket. It worked out. That's how my career kind of started. So it's so it's kind of been like that, like everything just kind of fucking doesn't work and i just keep my head down and just shoving and shoving um plowing along and eggs in one basket and it kind of works (laughs) out um yeah honestly it's just kind of do it until it doesn't right learn from your successes and you call them successes very painful ones but it seems like that's just kind of how i do things so yeah hopefully i'll be a pro one day uh still feel like an amateur more mistakes we made. Um, another one to show up, keep showing up. Somebody successful said, "99 percent of success is just showing up." End quote. Yeah, same thing. Just plying my head. Honestly, I I just picked stuff that just I jive with, so that I feel good about what I'm doing. Um, it's also kind of validation that Kevin Kelly said this is true, so it must be true. I'm gonna do it. Um, it's nothing. Uh, when crisis and disaster strike don't waste time no problems no progress it's true I think crisis and disasters are amazing they're amazing opportunities it sucks for I guess humanity for what COVID is but honestly that's you know face facts this is an awesome opportunity for people I think generally when shit doesn't work out it creates opportunities for the survivors and it's all about surviving you survive and then you use the crisis and that's what I'm trying to do that's how omd daily this idea came about that's why i made the pivot to go focus on applying for vc funds we'll see if it works and also my stock portfolio got completely um rejigged like don't get me wrong i lost a fuck ton of money um but try kind of repositioned everything to hopefully make the best of it so we'll see we'll know in about five years time and another one Well, this one's more of a frustrating one. It's uh, quote. It's experience is overrated when hiring hire for aptitude, train for skills, most really amazing or great things are done by people doing them for the first time. End quote. See, that's awesome. And I really wish a lot of people thought like that. And I really thought a lot of people did think like that, especially in the tech world, but at least in Canada, that's not the case. Um, the fact that I spoke to more than a hundred startups and the fact that I had applied for more than 200 jobs, even like I'm telling entry level finance, roles entry-level talent acquisition roles and yeah they didn't like my background apparently you know having been a charter accountant and management consultant and investor at like one of the best funds in canada just ain't gonna cut it and being a a successful athlete is also not gonna cut it either so that stuff is something i learned where a lot of times i get dinged on Ah, i need someone with at least five ten years of experience um and i'm like well i think i'll do better because i don't have experience but i know how to create effective systems but honestly that argument's really hard to sell surprisingly honestly this is yeah this quote just kind of made me really bitter um at the world and that takes me to another quote where kevin kelly said there is no them like quote-unquote them and that's true can't blame anyone um honestly it's i'm probably not doing it right probably not talking to the right people i'm probably not um approaching the right companies and yeah I could, you could say that i've been fucking it up 200 times hopefully i'll learn that's that's the hope <laughs> something that did uh hit me hard was um oh okay two two last quotes so one quote is follow your bliss following your bliss is a recipe for paralysis if you don't know what you're passionate about. A better model for most youth is master something, anything. Through mastery of one thing, you can drift towards extensions of that mastery that bring you more joy and eventually discover where your bliss is. End quote. And I thought I thought about that and my first gut reaction was fuck Maybe I did rush things. And in part, yeah, I kind of do feel like I'm out of rush things for sure. Um, it's definitely not, although I like being patient as an investor, like I've I can hold stocks that go up and down for like five plus years. But for my career, I've definitely been impatient um, to some degrees, and it's served me well, I think, until sometimes it doesn't. And I think this this recent period has got me thinking about yeah, like did I rush it? Should I have stayed in consulting longer? Should I have? Um, stay in the public equity sphere longer uh, like as an employee and in one way possibly but at the same time if I didn't leave I probably wouldn't have experienced all this stuff now like I wouldn't know any of this stuff now and I still feel like I would have probably still been the dumbass that I was like even you know four years ago four or five years ago yeah but I can under I can definitely understand why you want to match something and use that to move over. Um, but honestly, I think I spent so much time triaging, collecting data over the last effectively five, six years of my imp- like kind of post-university life that I have definitely figured out what my passion is and yeah i'm just trying to get mastery in it just not, don't know how but i'll eventually do it you know i think all this will lead into it who knows which leads to the final quote which is the universe is conspiring behind your back to make you a success this will be much easier to do if you embrace this paranoia and yeah i think that's that's kind of what everything is really like everything I'm, i've been doing is just i've always believed that i'll succeed I don't think there's ever been a moment of, well, there have there have been moments of doubt, but it's kind of like how Warren Buffett has this quote where he says he knew he would always be rich. I honestly have never doubted I would, like I, I never doubted that I wouldn't succeed. Um, and it's also because I've had awesome mentors. One of my first mentors in the working world, he would always tell me that whatever I did, I'm the kind of person that would succeed at whatever I did. And that always stuck with me. And he's the guy that told me to leave KPMG too. Because he said I'd get bored and I wouldn't learn as much. And I always always remember that. Every time it gets hard. Every time things don't seem like it's working. I always remember what he said and go, okay, well, he said I'd succeed. So I probably will. Just got to keep on going. And I know we're getting close to the 40-minute mark. I didn't expect myself to be so talkative. But another thing I learned today was actually read through a 2015 interview um, transcript of St- Stanley Drunkenmiller, the famous hedge fund investor of of Duquesne Capital. And for people who don't know St- who Stanley Drunken, Drunkenmiller is, um, like people might know Warren Buffett, but they might not know Stanley Drunkenmiller. And this guy is another like investing royalty, like you know, man's a Man's obviously a billionaire. Um, what's his net worth? Something like $4.7 billion. And he's been in the hedge fund industry for some like 30 plus years. And I think he hasn't had, he hasn't had a down year in, for 30 years. Uh, his 30-year average return, I think, is something like 30%. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But 30% annualized returns over 30 years is fucking impressive. And he worked with George Soros until um, 2000 and he was crucial in the uh famous shorting of the british pound in 1992 that made sort of a fuck ton of money and so he's a guy i love uh listening to reading about and learning from um and he's kind i say his style he he is a fundamental guy i think because you know he reads things bottom up a lot of times but he incorporates a lot of it into a macro based style where you know, he plays with currency he plays with debt he plays with commodity uh he plays with equity like he plays with everything and so he's just an all-around awesome investor so this 2015 interview transcript was pretty i think a rare find um thank you for focus compounding for sharing it focus compounding is a wonderful podcast i listened to and so andrew kuhn from focus compounding here on his twitter feed so i really appreciate that and i love the interview where so There there's a famous saying in investing where they say bulls make money, bears make money, pigs get slaughtered and the whole idea is not be a pig. And Stanley Drunkenmiller in this interview said, I'm here to tell you that I was a pig And, you know, that immediately catches your attention. And then I didn't know a lot about his life, but you know, he talks about how, yeah, he was never in the top ten percent in his grade, he was never his SAT scores were so bad he had to go to university that wouldn't look at SAT scores back then, and then he worked for like a small bank in Pits- or he worked for a bank in Pittsburgh, um, in their equity research department when he was twenty three, and he became the director of equity research when he was twenty five. And the reason for that was because his boss then was so eccentric and so unconventional that when Stanley was uh, in his position when he got promoted. They had been in a bear market for about 10 years, and Stanley's boss told him that he thinks a bull market is coming. But because all the old-timers, um, all of you know the senior guys, they'd been a, in a bear market for so long, um, Stanley's boss thought everyone would be too scared to pull the trigger. And so he needed the young, naive idiot to be the one who can just charge straight in ahead because he has little experience. And so he put a bet into Stanley. And so Stanley did. And then he put in massive positions uh, for like an oil rebound. He put like 70% of the cash into like one big position. And it worked. Like he doubled his money within the year um, for the fund. And he immediately became the chief investment officer at the age of 26. And he kept on doing that. Um, And that kind of formed his mindset of betting huge. And... The first lesson he so he talks Stanley Druckenmiller in the interview says there are two major lessons he learned from mentors his mentors um, the first mentor the guy at uh, Pittsburgh National Bank the one that made him the director of research the lesson he learned from him was that it's liquidity that, it's liquidity that moves the markets and so you should always be watching the Fed like people be, fundamental guys always believe that earnings will move stock prices and. The idea is is that, yeah, like if your earnings go up 20%, your stock price should go up 20%. And I think the correct way is that in a long enough time frame, that is probably what should happen. In like a 10, 20 year time frame, the market will realize that. And I think that's kind of the crux behind a lot of value investing where you expect the market to become efficient over time. But it's inefficient in the short time. And you're trying to exploit that. But it's interesting to hear about how Drucker Miller's mentor at the time talks about how it's liquidity that moves the market. And it's liquidity movement that will create the inefficiencies. Um, sometimes liquidity can make stocks really cheap, it can make the stocks really expensive. And over time, when you invest in the companies that can grow earnings, they're the ones that will do well over time. So I think it's a combination of that learning to incorporate at least for me um and after his time at the Pittsburgh bank he ran his own fund Kane, and then he joined George Soros the famous hedge fund investor at Quantum and what he learned from Soros his second valuable learning was I learned something in- incredibly valuable and that is when you see it to bet big and this is something Stanley talks about a lot where he mentions how he thinks how diversification and all the stuff they teach at business school today is probably the most misguided concept everywhere. Um, and how he also talks about how if you if you see it, you, you have to go for it because that's bare, it's a better bet than 90% of the other stuff you would add on to. And he also talks about how I think 80% of the big, big money... Um, he made was in the like, kids was in his big bets and they are the big bets that he made during like the bear markets and they also happen to be in equities i think and so yeah that's generally a lot of what the i think interview talks about where for me like that's what i took out where it's yeah bet big and like stanley's betting 70 percent 200 percent of the fund in like single positions and soros calls them um one-way bets where it's just There's no other way for it to go it's just gonna work out it's gonna go up and those things happen maybe once a year twice a year at most and it's really important for people to not get trigger happy all the time so that's definitely something that i took away from the interview Um, another thing another quote is he says never ever invest in the present you have to look to the future if you invest in the present you're going to get run over And that quote's kind of referring to how, yeah, a lot of people are focused on what the company's earning now, what the company's position is now. But the whole point of investing is you have to look at the future. You have to look at where it's going to be, where you think it's going to be. Um, You have to use a current present position to kind of dictate, to try to figure out where it could be in the future. And I think that's a lot of stuff that's not really accounted for often. And... I don't know. I guess a part a part of me though believes that the value of looking at the present is because it helps kind of plant a margin of safety to some degree. Like when I look at free cash flow yields of a business now, it helps create the lay out the margin of safety of okay, well, you know, if it's if it's trading at you know ten times free cash flow, then okay, well, possibly the floor could be like a ten percent um, yield if if we use like a not a normalized you know five five year period and it's a pretty stable business and that's how it's been and so if you don't account for growth then you know you can potentially have like a floor of 10 percent and so you you kind of build that margin of safety in and i think that's what the value of looking at the present is but then yeah given that potential downside then you have to look at completely the future to see okay well what could it be what could be going forward um and i think that's pretty interesting to think about Something else that was interesting, um, two, I'll actually go through two quotes. One quote, I bought 6 billion worth of tech stocks and in six weeks I had left Soros and I had lost 3 billion in that one play. I already knew that I wasn't supposed to do that. I was just an emotional basket case and I couldn't help myself. So maybe I learned not to do it again, but I already knew that. And this is what he said in response to his biggest learning. And this was what happened in 1999 and to 2000, where tech stocks just—it didn't make sense. And Dreki Miller was just out of it. Like he tried shorting companies, and he lost like two million, two hundred million dollars shorting the tech companies as they were cascading upwards in stock price. And eventually, he just felt like he was missing out, and he pulled the trigger. And he bet six billion, lost half of it because everything tanked. And yeah, it's just. I just love the candidness where it's like, yeah, I knew, what, I, knew I shouldn't do it, but I did it. <laughs> and it's like, did you learn anything from it? Probably not. Like, you know, you're not supposed to do that, but you just do it because you just, it's an emotional thing. And maybe that's, that plays into well with how you know, everyone's so obsessed with studying your failures, but you maybe probably should be studying your successes because a lot of times the failures, like you, you, you kind of know you're not supposed to do that. But a lot of times they're the emotional things that make you do something. And it's like, yeah, well, confirm that. I already knew that. Uh, Another quote I like is, if you're with one of the lazy people or one of the people that are just doing it for the money, you're going to get run over by those people. And this is where he talks about how whether he picks money managers or how why he's been successful he just talks about passion like just undying passion for the markets undying passion for just betting and he he specifically talks about how he loves betting and that his job just allowed him to make a lot of these bets legally and yeah that's you know that's an undeniably crucial point you need to be super passionate in what you do, and it doesn't matter. I I really don't give a shit if you know, people overuse that term. And there's a lot of gurus and motherfuckers who talk about passion like they know what the fuck it is. And honestly, I'm not even that too familiar with what what it is either. I just know that it's fucking enough for me to be doing what I do um, without even getting paid, and I still want to do it. And I still want to pursue. I still want to figure out how to make it work. And I don't really give a shit if statistics will say I'm gonna fail. So I think that's kinda of what passion is. I think that's kinda of what purpose is. Um I wrote a whole essay on it and even then I wrote an essay even without fully realizing it. So, you know, who knows? Maybe I'll look back ten years later and go like, God, that was that was not passion at all. But at this at least for the moment, I think this is what passion is. Like, I thought I was passionate in just purely investing. Um, and I was saying like traditional value investing reading annual reports and writing stock research and to be honest though no, i was i honestly i just wanted a job then i just wanted to be in a fund i just wanted to be an investor and i don't think i was really as passionate about it and i think that's also why it was easy for me to you know kind of part ways with joining a public equity fund again because i i don't really i never really enjoyed writing those investment reports um at least the way that traditional fund managers want it to be a lot of data a lot of facts a lot of charts and playing with a lot of models and some might say that's kind of the property diligence but it's just not how i want to invest and if i don't run other people's money then i don't have to give a shit what other people say as long as i get the results i want and i do it the way i want to i mean that's what buffett says where he says invest in what you're interested in and if what i if my way makes sense to me then i think that's just the way i'm going to make make do with it we'll see we'll see how it works out you know, hopefully I it all works out within the 10 years time frame. And, you know, the way I want to invest meets well with financial returns. Hopefully I'm smart enough to see that. Um, if it doesn't work out, that like, I, I change my ways. Um, oh, and something else I, was, I thought was cool was how Drucker Miller's early investors, um, I think he had some like 100 L, uh, investors in his Duquesne fund. One of them was Ken Langoon or Langone. Uh, it's L A N G O N E, and I I heard I've I'd heard of that name before. And Draken Miller said Ken was very influential in his life, and is one of the key investors that he's had in his fund for a very long time before he closed it in twenty ten. And I've learned that this guy funded the Home Depot founders. Um, he was an early venture capital investor, and I thought that was also really cool because people nowadays think like venture capital is just, this like recent thing with all these tech companies and you know silicon valley and all that you know rise of facebook and google etc but you know this ken guy he's he's been around since 1935 and like he, his venture fund called invamed was launched in 1974 So venture capital has always been around. I didn't know that. I never honestly studied this history of venture capital. I never learned venture capital when I was in school. I didn't even get to really learn about private equity when I was in school. Like, we didn't really talk about investment funds at all. Like, I came from a business program, but the fact that I wasn't even familiar with it speaks volumes for how shitty schools educate us. At least, maybe I just didn't pay attention. could be just my fault. But, um, yeah, that was really cool. I thought that was really cool. Where you know this guy had a venture fund and he invested in the home depot guys back in the 70s that's that's an awesome story and that he's actually tied in with drunken miller too that's also really cool thought that was cool yeah and that's kind of my my day uh spending a lot of time thinking about starting this podcast and deciding okay well i'll make it a daily thing i'll my, do my first episode today and then just learning a bunch about Drunken Miller and Kevin Kelly and just talking about it. Yeah, not a bad day. Not too effective, I'd say. Um, but I think in the grand scheme of things, I am learning every day and Charlie Munger says, that's what you want to do. So I think I've accomplished that. Well, I hope this was somewhat entertaining. Potentially, hopefully valuable and learning about random things that you didn't know before and yeah i hope to see you back again or, or i hope you listen back again to the rest of the show um rest of my episodes rest of my life so yeah thanks for tuning in to the first episode and hopefully i'll continue doing this take care